Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Andrew Claven is with us today, one of the very few Americans in our time to have become a leading voice in the literary arts and in political commentary. He is a renowned novelist. In fact, he has a book coming out as we're recording this week entitled A Strange Habit of Mind, which uh, follows from his previous work quite nicely. We're going to push that uh, on, uh, on libraries, readers, bookstores, please. He's also a screenwriter, a successful one, and also an opinion writer whose pieces have appeared in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. He hosts one of the most popular podcasts on current affairs at The Daily Wire. His new book, though, is on a different subject. It's called The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. That is our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Clavin. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. You open, we jump right into the book, you open with a moment of skepticism about the Sermon on the Mount, though you also mention your conversion uh, a dozen years earlier, which you call, quote, a stroke against the unbelieving tenor of the times. First, uh, would you like to give us a brief rundown of your conversion then, uh, then a clarification of, I mean, this is big, I know, uh, your clarification of that, uh, that the moment of your, your, your conversion uh, discussed in the great good thing, but your frustration, as you put it, with the sermon uh, on, on the Mount. So p- please. Well, it's a little tough to be brief about my conversion because I, I was baptized at 49. So it was a long, long journey, but, but, it had to be a long journey because I was coming from about as far away as you can get. I was a secular Jew working in uh, all of the coastal industries, living in the coastal cities, in publishing. I was in the movie business. I lived in uh, New York City and L.A. and London. And these were places where if you were part of the mainstream of that culture, uh, the default setting was unbelief. And it was only a slow, slow progress First, in the first place, uh, through the logic of uh, of morality without God, which made no sense to me. Only the Marquis de Sade is the only honest atheist I've ever read, actually, uh, who follows his ideas uh, to their fulfillment in in what is now known as sadism. Um, but but part of this was uh, a, a a mental breakdown. I, I don't know how to describe it. In my late twenties, I went insane. And um, because I was in so much personal agony, I couldn't believe what I knew to be the case because it seemed to me just seizing a crutch. 
it would just be taking a crutch against my uh, mental pain to believe. Yeah. And so I basically threw aside the life, you know, it was like somebody threw me a life raft and I said, yeah, I can't take that because that would be a crutch. And, uh, and it was only when by what I consider a miracle, I went completely sane uh, with the help of a, a brilliant psychiatrist, but I've never seen anybody else make that transition from as crazy as I was to as sane as I became. It was only then when I thought, oh, this actually, this logic holds. And that began my journey into theism and ultimately into Christianity. Uh, but, but because of a lifelong obsession with making sense that the things that I think should hold together uh, as one thought, as one idea, and that you can't say, oh, well, there's a morality, but there's no ultimate morality. It just doesn't make sense. In keeping with that, I would come across things in the Gospels that I just thought, I don't get that. I don't understand uh, you know, why I should love my enemies. I pick my enemies very carefully. I don't even like them. Uh, let, so me, why... let, me, uh, yeah. let, let me mention, I mean, one, one way you put it is, I could not fathom what Jesus was talking about. It wasn't that you disagreed. Yeah. It was, huh? Right, because because when I did understand, and this, these things would happen, uh, you know, a, a phrase would come back to me, and I say, "Oh, now I get it." I noticed that my joy increased, and not—I don't mean happiness in the moment. I mean my vitality and living increased permanently whenever I came to an understanding. So here I was at the Sermon on the Mount, this kind of the ultimate statement of uh, Jesus's thought, and um, I, I, it didn't make sense to me. So much of it sounded like if you uh, suffer in this life, things will go better in the next. And, and life doesn't seem like a throwaway to me. It seems essential. It seems urgent. Uh, it seems to matter what happens to you in this world very, very much indeed. And it seems to matter how you live. And I, I don't understand why we would be here in uh, what is often a veil of tears if it we're just supposed to kind of grit our teeth and think, well, yeah, but next, next inning is going to be the, the big one for me. And so, uh, you know, I, I found myself kind of hobbled on these moments. One I always like to cite because it's it's funny in a way is Peter walking on water and he becomes afraid and he begins to sink. And Jesus says to him, oh, ye of little faith. And I think, well, how much faith do you have to have? I mean, I, I've never taken a single step on water. Uh, and so it seems to me it should have been well done next time. You know, you'll do better. And that and yet, and yet I, I felt Jesus meant it. I feel he means what he says, even when he's sometimes being sarcastic or uh, hyperbolic. I feel he means what he says. And when you do understand it, a uh, little light goes on and it's kind of like the tank fills up just a little bit more with joy. And so that's where I was stuck when this book begins in the, in the uh, scene that opens the book. And that brings us to a turn that that is the subject of the book. And that is the, the value of the English poets to the Gospels as we understand them. You, you see that they, they really illuminate some things. Are you going back to your days as an English major at Berkeley in, in 1970? Well, only in the sense that it was at Berkeley when I first read uh, the poetry of John Keats. And it was, I mean, it always reminds me of that song, uh, Killing Me Softly with his song, where she's listening to the singer and she says it was as if he found my letters and read each one out loud. And when I read John Keats with his anguish and his youthful ambition and his high ideals, uh, I felt like I was uh, seeing myself over centuries and uh, who I wanted to be and this that desperate urge to put something down and become one of the English writers. And, uh, and I just loved his poetry. And I started to read the Romantics, which I do feel is as a collection, the greatest age of English poetry. Uh, and so they were 
imprinted on my mind, this was over the course of many years, even after I left uh, school, when I did most of my reading after I left school, um, you know, those, their outlook and their ideas and their life stories were imprinted on my mind. So when I returned to the Gospels, kind of seeking to figure things out, because as I point out in the opening of the book, my son said to me, you're trying to understand a philosophy. You should be trying to get to know a man. And that changed the way I looked at the Gospels. I went back to the Gospels in a fresh way. And mm. all of those poems, as I read in, read Jesus from that perspective, all of those poems bubbled up in me. And I thought, oh, I get it. They're sort of saying similar things. They're talking not about what you should do, not about be a good boy or you'll go to hell, um, you know, suffer now and you'll be happy later. They're talking about how you see things. They're talking about Jesus sees things a certain way and he's trying to get you to see them a certain way uh, and he says i'm saying these things so that the joy that is in me will be in you and that actually changed the way i read them and reminded me very much of these poets for reasons i explained in the book because it seems like the weirdest idea in the world i didn't even know how to tell my editor i was writing the book the book i didn't tell anybody until i was finished with it except my wife uh because it seemed like such an odd idea but in fact it makes perfect sense uh, you, you actually just answered my, my following question. I was going to ask, why, why the Romantic poets so much? Why not the, the, the strongly Christian poets of, of, the, you know, of, the, of the 17th century, like, like George Herbert? But as you just said, I, you weren't looking for the, the content of the faith so much. You were looking at ways of seeing the world, ways of seeing yourself. And, and the Romantics themselves had their... Had their, well, not, not, had their unchristian moments, their unchristian, I mean, Shelley, Shelley was an atheist, right? Yes, and, and it's funny, I only pick out certain romantics, because we talk about the romantics yeah. as if they were a, a block of, of people who all believe the same thing. Uh, but as the, the critic, uh, Jacques Barzin, points out, no, they were just uh, people all trying to solve the same problem. And the problem they were trying to solve is, is what is reality now that our faith has collapsed? So they were actually taxed uh, with the position of rebuilding the world, the mind of the West without God. And yet some of them started to find that that was not going to work. And the ones that I picked were all touched by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who is not just one of the greatest minds of his age. He was the greatest minds of, of any age. Uh, he was just a brilliant, brilliant man. And the one among them who always believed, he was the one who remained a Christian, uh, sometimes an eccentric Christian, sometimes an offbeat Christian, but always kept Christ in his heart uh, throughout his, his life, his tortured life. And he touches each one of these poets and these writers, Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, is in, included, and, and sort of injected something of his mind into theirs. And it's really a beautiful, beautiful story, an almost mysterious, mystical story uh, in which Coleridge's mind sort of travels first from Wordsworth when he's frozen at, at, in the moment when his radicalism and his belief in the French Revolution has fallen apart. Coleridge steps into his life out of nowhere and reignites his creative spirit. Keats, when he is at the moment when he half realizes he's dying, when he's lost his brother and he's completely frozen, he's walking uh, in Hampstead Heath and he looks up and there's Coleridge and Coleridge talks to him for about an hour. And after that, Keats unloads the greatest uh, poetry in the English language since Shakespeare in the course of a couple of months. 
and Mary Shelley had been touched by Coleridge when she was a child. Uh, he came over and read The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner at her parents' house. And so each one of them has Coleridge, uh, like an inspiration as Coleridge himself sort of spirals into addiction and madness. Uh, each one of them is uplifted by him uh, to it. And, and I don't want to call it a Christian worldview. It's the, it's the view on which uh, Christianity stands. In other words, it is what Jesus was trying to get people to see, and they see it, but they don't always know why. Well, one of the things that makes the book such a great read is the way in which you do ground a lot of beliefs in actual life events of these real people. You set the scenes. You, 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 you act like a, like a scriptwriter in some ways when you when you've got the the characters coming in you you start with the quote immortal evening of 1817 what happened there well it's it's hilarious one of my it is my favorite story i guess in in the history of literature you, you have to remember england is a small island london is a small town and here are the greatest poets you know, six of the greatest poets all alive at the same time, Shelley, Byron, Blake, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Keats, they're all alive at the same time. And this kind of mediocre painter uh, holds a party and invites them over. Hayden, he's, he knows all of them. And he invites over Keats and Wordsworth and uh, and others come over and they all start drinking and they act hilariously stupid. These great minds uh, just the devolve into a clown show of an evening uh, where they're cursing and making fun of each other and making fun of other people. And, uh, and Charles Lamb, the great wit and great alcoholic is, is there. But in that, buried in all the hilarity of that evening are all the issues of the moment. Um, you know, political radicalism, uh, gender, which has become a question. You know, it's so much like today, it's almost uncanny. Um, who are you without God? How can you have any faith at all without God? What has science done to the way we look at things? And so I use that as a, a hilarious story because it's a wonderful story, but I also use it as a springboard into this new age that these guys have got to somehow figure out. And through it all is Hayden's not very good painting, this epic painting of Christ's entry into Jerusalem. And it is overseeing this whole thing. And I point out that really the problem they are all facing is that as in that moment when Christ entered Jerusalem, Christ is leaving the world. The, the faith that has upheld the Middle Ages is disappearing from the world so that a, a, a while later, Nietzsche will be justified in saying God is dead, meaning that he's dead in human hearts and minds, of course, not that he's actually dead. Uh, and, so, and so that's the t task they're faced with. And either they're going to do what the Marquis de Sade did, because he was alive uh, in that moment as well, or had, had been alive shortly before, they're either going to do what he did and say, since God is dead, we should just follow our natures. If we want to be cruel, we should be cruel. If we want to rape, we should rape. If we want to, you know, if we get fun from suffering somebody, what is somebody else's suffering to us? It's not our suffering, uh, which all make perfect sense if there's no God, as far as I'm concerned. Or they're going to find themselves rebuilding the Christian vision. And I think that that's what they did, even as I say, when they didn't mean to. You, you talk about the romantic poets, but you also uh, bring up a scene out of Hamlet when Hamlet has his encounter with the ghost. What's the significance of that scene in your in your story here? Well, it's, it's a very important moment because as Stephen Greenblatt writes about this uh, brilliantly, he's a, he is a great 
um, Shakespeare scholar, but an atheist. And so sometimes he doesn't quite understand what Shakespeare is talking about, I think, but he, but he loves him and he writes beautifully about him. But he points out that ghosts were a very um, hot topic during the Reformation from which a lot of the loss of religion comes and a lot of the loss of religion comes as the church splits apart and people start questioning the teaching of the Catholic church and all these sects grow up and all this. And one of the questions, one of the big questions is, can there be a ghost? What is a ghost? Where does a ghost come from? Because people have seen ghosts uh, and there's a ghost in the Bible that, uh, that the prophet calls up. I mean, that the witch of Endor calls up. So where do these ghosts come from? You can't escape from uh, hell, so that doesn't make any sense. And uh, the Catholic Church had developed an idea, this idea of limbo, this idea of an in-between place between heaven and hell, where you might go for a while and then get uh, released into heaven, you might get purified, but in the meantime, you might pop up as a ghost. And the Protestants thought this was the stupidest thing ever. It's uh, it's a complete, complete idolatry. It's not in the, in the Gospels. So here is uh, Hamlet, who's just come back from Luther's city, where the city where the Reformation begins, even though we're not sure when Hamlet is set, Shakespeare could not have cared less about such things. You know, he's obviously referring to Luther. He comes back from the city. Uh, he is indeed a, a Catholic, uh, and he sees, uh, he's a Protestant, I think, and he sees a Catholic ghost. And so right away, the question becomes, what is truth? Is this a demon? Is this reality? How do I now know what is truth? If I don't know what truth is, how do I know who I am? If without God, how do I know what's inside me is a real thing and not an illusion? And mm. um, and all of those questions, which are, are, make Hamlet what it is, because otherwise Hamlet, if Hamlet were Othello and they come came to him and said, someone killed your father, go kill him. The play would have been over in 10 minutes. Right? You know, it's, he's, he has been infected by the spirit of the age and has lost his ability not only to tell what truth is, but to tell who he himself is. And that is, of course, one of the things that, um, that brings Hamlet to the edge of madness. And I have to add, throw this in, in his mad scene, Hamlet reflects all of the movements that are going on today, the separation from language, the separation from truth, the moral relativity, all of that is included in the mad scene. And the only difference with Hamlet is Hamlet is pretending to be mad. The people doing it today, the college professors doing it today, pretending to be sane. Uh, but it's an incredibly <laughs> prescient, <laughs> if not prophetic, play about what happens when you lose your faith. And so, you know, what, just to add one thing, Mark, which I, I feel when so many people, when they talk about literature, when they teach literature, teach literature without God. And I don't mean without faith in God. I mean, without the, the presence of God in the uh, writer's lives. But that presence, even if it's the presence of atheism, even if it's an absence, is always there and always affects what's going on. And each one of them was born at a time when something different was happening um, between in the, in the matter of faith and the question of faith. And all of them are affected by it and all of them are reacting to it. And that's why I use other writers, uh, you know, Paradise Lost and John Milton, Paradise Lost and other writers, uh, as well as the romantics. Resist junk food journalism. That is the clarion call of the First Things 2022 year-end campaign. No shrill moralizing, overwrought clickbait, and limp prose. Such writing, if we want to call it that, might taste good in the moment, but ultimately it fails to satisfy. Instead, we invite you to a sumptuous intellectual, spiritual, moral feast, essays, reviews, and poems written by leading lights of religious thought complemented by other media such as the podcast you are listening to now. 
This is a better way. Join us to strengthen the vital nourishing work of First Things by making your tax-deductible gift to the 2022 year-end campaign today at www.firstthings.com backslash campaign. Thank you. Uh, after a, a rich biographical portrait of the of the key of the Byron Shelley crowd uh, there in, in in Switzerland, uh, Frankenstein comes into the discussion. What is what is the real crime that Doctor Frankenstein commits? How, how does the book fit in the story generally? Well, everybody, including Mary Shelley, the author, says that Frankenstein has usurped the prerogative of God to create life. And I point out that's simply not true. Human beings create life all the time and they create it out of the materials we're given. God creates things out of nothing and he's the only one who can do that. So he's not really stealing the prerogative of God. He's stealing the prerogative of women. Uh, he is stealing, he is creating a man without a mother. And that uh, affects, and, 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 it, and that theme runs through the book. It's not, I'm not making that up. It is the theme in the book. It's the first nightmare that Dr. Frankenstein has after he's created his monsters that he sees uh, his his wife on the street and he runs, or his, his beloved on the street and he runs to her arms and she turns out to be his rotting, decaying mother. Uh, all this symbolism about motherhood is in the book. Uh, and, and this is what is happening in this moment. Mary Shelley is the daughter of the first great feminist or proto-feminist Mary Wollstonecraft. She is the daughter of a famous atheist. Her husband, uh, or he wasn't her husband then, but her soon-to-be husband, Percy Shelley, is an avid atheist. They all believe in free love, and they all think marriage is a sham and a prison uh, for the sexual impulse, which should run free. And in running free in their sexual impulse, very much like today, the very same series of thoughts as we are in today, they make a hell on earth. I mean, Shelley's abandoned wife drowns herself uh, in the serpentine. Uh, you know, Byron has an affair with um, Mary, with Mary Shelley's um, stepsister, which leaves them with a child whom he takes away and throws into a nunnery where she dies. I mean, it's just, they just became monsters following their sexual impulse. And Mary Shelley sits there worshiping. She worshiped her father. She worshiped her husband. Um, but when he, and when he dies, she keeps her memory alive and never marries again, but she slowly becomes a conservative Victorian, highlighting the importance of the domestic role of women. And this is the point. Many of the romantic poets lost their mothers young. Wordsworth did, uh, Keats did, and were fascinated by babies and were fascinated by what mothers do. And Wordsworth has a passage of how a mother not creates life, not through her body, but through her interchange with a baby, how her nursing the baby and her interchange with the baby creates the individual uh, that he becomes, sets him free of her body to become his own person. That turns out to be scientifically correct for what that's worth. I mean, I would take Wordsworth's word over scientists any day, but it turns out to be exactly what happens, that babies do, in fact, form their personalities in interchange with their mother. And my point in, uh, of this, in all of this is to point out that Mary Shelley is foreseeing, is prophesying in inventing the genre, the modern genre of science fiction. She's foreseeing a world in which women start to become obsolete. She's seeing a hostility between science, which is largely a masculine project, a hostility between science and the role of women, not just in giving birth, but in giving life. You know, as, as I point out, even God, when he wanted to become a human being, 
picked a mother. You know, he found a mother first. He could have snapped his fingers and said, poof, I'm a human being. But instead he said, no, I'm going to become a human being. I'm going to have to interact, interact with a mother. And we see this now in this transgender moment, this moment of transgender, to my mind, insanity. And I'm not saying gender isn't a complex subject. I'm just saying that the transgender movement is an insane movement. Uh, we're seeing this, this move to eliminate women to eliminate women because what, what happens tomorrow when somebody invents uh, a pod that can do what the womb can do and we can make uh, children in a little toaster oven in the kitchen, uh, what are women for then? Uh, are we going to say, well, gee, men are better at athletes. They're just as good at least as being mathematicians. And what, what do we need them? Why do we need them? And uh, I think what Mary Shelley was saying, it was, yes, if you want to create monsters, uh, you, you can get rid of women. But if you want to create men and women, you're going to have to have women. You're going to have to have mothers because they're essential. And I, I really believe that this is a, a hugely prophetic and important point that she was making, whether she knew she was making it or not. And I also point out that a lot of science fiction that follows and a lot of horror that follows is about a horror of female bodies. I mean, you look at uh, things like um, like Carrie by Stephen King. The girl has her period and suddenly she has these magic powers and everybody ends up bathed in blood. You look at The Exorcist, which is a girl reaching uh, uh, maturity and suddenly she's become a, a demon, uh, demon infested, this horror of, of the woman's body. And then this science fictional elimination of women. Um, you look at a, a film like The Matrix, a, a word that derives from womb, where machines uh, have taken over the world. And it's, it's interesting that it's made by transgender men. The, the guys who made that movie became girls or think they became girls later on. And my favorite example uh, is The Terminator, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, uh, the original, which I think is a, a brilliant little film, but just a wonderful film where the machines have taken over the world, but there are still some men fighting back. So they go back in time to kill the rebel's mother. And all she is when you meet her, later she becomes a superhero, a feminist superhero in the lesser movies that follow. But in that first movie, she's just a girl. She's just a, right. a, a girly girl. And that's what makes her dangerous to the machines. And I think that that is something that Mary Shelley foresaw, that the very girliness of girls is a danger uh, to the me mechanistic view of humankind, which is now very fast approaching uh, a, the full support of our elites. You said earlier that Coleridge is the one who really remained faithful to his, to his faith throughout his life consistently, and that his vision uh, is nicely embodied in a line that, that you have, quote, we are, each of us, the eighth day of creation. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, what, what Coleridge was talking about is something that um, the philosopher C.S. Lewis's friend Owen Barfield called participation, which is the fact that there is no place where reality and consciousness diverge. Uh, as, as Barfield pointed out, there's no such thing as an unseen rainbow. There's no such thing as an unheard sound. Uh, there's no such thing as an unfelt solidity in Barfield's own words. Uh, but all of those things are real. Music is real. A punch in the face is real. A rainbow is, is in fact real, but they are created by the minds of human beings. 
And there's no place where that's not true. Scientists sometimes think that numbers are in the mind of God, but no, God is way beyond numbers. Numbers are something that we see out of reality, and they prove the fact that our impressions, our creations are connected to a reality beyond ourselves. And this is what Coleridge understood very, very, very brilliantly and very deeply understood that that the reason we are afraid, the reason Hamlet, for instance, is afraid of not being able to tell reality is that reality changes according to our moods. You can get reality wrong. You can think you're in love, but not be in love. You can think it's moral to hold slaves when it's not moral to hold slaves. But the very fact that you can get something wrong means you can get it right, that there is also a right answer or maybe a series of right answers. And what Coleridge said was he th he suspected, uh, he asked the question whether Jesus Christ might be the sensorium, a word I have never heard used before or since, uh, meaning the model of how we are supposed to experience the world. But each of us is going to experience the world his, it, in his own way, but in the model of Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is what Jesus is talking about when he says you're a branch of the vine. The fruit that you bear is my fruit, but it, you are a branch of the vine. And if you cut the branch off, it just lies, becomes a stick, you know, it just lies in the ground. And so that was Coleridge's, to my mind, genius understanding of what uh, Jesus was sort of talking about. And it explains a lot. It explains why, you know, why should we give uh, money to the poor? Why should we care at all about the poor? Why should we care about the leper, the the, the guy who uh, means nothing? I mean, this was Nietzsche's big um, problem with Christianity is he felt it was a slave religion. It was giving the nobodies, the losers, uh, some kind of dignity and power when instead we should be following the the Superman. And, and so uh, Coleridge is explaining why that is because if each person is to some degree recreating the world, uh, if he's in acting in collaboration, uh, as Wordsworth said, with the one great mind, an agent of the one great mind, said Wordsworth, then what he's doing is is as important as what I'm doing and as important as what each person is doing. Each of us is actually participating in creation. We are the part of creation that creates. And it's not just the poets who do it, though they do it in a special way, in a beautiful way, uh, but it's all of us all the time. And this was, um, I think this was the great revelation of the romantics or these romantics, I should say, uh, and what connects them to the Gospels. Because once you start to see that Jesus is the sensorium, once you start to see him, in fact, uh, as the vine of which you are a branch, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount starts to make sense. And that's, you know, kind of I, I end the book by going through a lot of the Gospels and showing how uh, it makes sense. It doesn't change. Nothing I say changes theology. I mean, I'm not a theologian to begin with. Nothing I say changes uh, the great, you know, thinkers of the age. It's just a way of looking. We change. Jesus doesn't change, but we change. And it's a way of looking at it uh, in this modern world that these guys, I think, invented. Uh, last question. In your conclusion, or your epilogue, I should say, which has the title, The Road to Emmaus, there's an axiom which runs, everything becomes literature. Please explain. <laughs> well, you know, I point out that, for instance, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But where's Lazarus now? Lazarus is dead, you know, so whatever whatever miracle happened, it wasn't a permanent miracle. It was a sign. And, and, and Jesus essentially says that. He says, I know that you can do this, but I want people to see that it can be done. So a sign is a form of literature. I mean, it's a form of symbolism. It's a story that we tell down the ages because it has meaning. 
And everything that Jesus does in the road to Emmaus is to interpret the Bible, to interpret the stories of the Jews in a new way. And in doing that, he transforms the consciousness uh, of the West, and I would say of the world. And so we don't have to worry uh, as much as sometimes we do about whether, you know, this sentence is exactly right or it meshes with that sentence. I mean, some of the stuff that I feel um, people that actually the Catholics rarely do it, but it's it's uh, the Protestants who get stuck up, stuck on it because they, all they have is uh, scripture. They start to think, well, each line has to, here's the way I fit this line into that. But no, it's all literature. Every life is an, a work of literature. Uh, and certainly Jesus's life, I mean, the importance of Jesus's life is that it can be told and understood because after all, you know, while you have a living relationship with Christ, you also have this book that tells you the story of his life. And you have to believe that that's an important thing. That's literature. That is literature. And so uh, and so it's a, a question of, of, of meaning. Yes, but I believe that literature is first and foremost an experience. You know, the, the things we talk about when we give meaning to something come second to the experience of something. You have an experience, even, you know, even if you stub your toe, I don't care what it is, you might talk about what that pain meant to you later on, but the stubbing of the toe is the thing that you possess. And the same is true with stories, I think. You possess the story uh, as an emotional event in your life, an ongoing emotional event in your life. And the different ways that you look at it and bring meaning uh, of it, expand that experience, uh, or an expansion of that experience, but you always have to go back to the experience itself. One last example, uh, is just if you take the story of the fall of man of Genesis. I've heard that interpreted, you know, 15 at least different ways that made absolute sense to me. But the story remains the story. This thing that happened remains the thing that happened. And all all, all meaning is a, a lyric to what the poet Seamus Heaney called the music of what happens. And, and that's what I mean by it's being literature. We interpret it, but we experience it first. And we the experience becomes part of us. The book is The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. Andrew Claven, thank you for joining us. It's great talking to you, Thanks. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 877- 332-2930.